This is an RNZ podcast. Kia ora and welcome to the Kim Hill Collection. Angie Meikle-John lived at the infamous Centrepoint commune in the late 1980s. The commune was shut down in the year 2000, of course, and its founder was jailed. And over the years, there have been oh, lots of books and articles and uh, a very good podcast series as well about Centrepoint. Uh, many of them are excellent. But the 2018 documentary Angie, which Michael John is talking about in this interview, is probably one of the most personal and certainly in her case, uh, cathartic of all. This is a deep and raw and honest discussion. Uh, just a note that this interview does discuss sexual abuse and drugs, so please do be judicious about whether or not you listen. When Angie Meiklejohn went to Centrepoint Community as a teenager, she was already in trouble. Sexually abused, unstable mother, absent father, known to the police. Centrepoint compounded the damage. It was closed down in 2000. The leader, Bert Potter, was jailed for drug crimes and sex abuse of minors. He died in 2012. Angie and her three siblings went on to lives of struggle. Director Costa Botes has made a documentary about Angie and her efforts to recover herself. It'll screen at the International Film Festival. It's extraordinarily frank. I asked Angie if she was now taken aback by the frank nature of it all. No, because that's how I am. So what you see is what you get. What you hear is what you... <laughs> is what I've been through. Um... It's an interesting paradox, though, isn't it? Because you talk about how what's happened to you makes it hard to be yourself when you're around other people. And yet... You say it's all out there. Yeah, that is an interesting paradox. Um, it's not like I'm thinking about that while I'm with other people. What has often been present, and it's something that I continue to work on, um, has been the level of shame and self-hatred and self-disgust and... Um, and actually through making the film and mainly through watching the edits uh, as it's come together, I feel like in a way that the shame of, that I've been carrying of what happened to us at Centrepoint or to me um, has lifted uh, because shame, I guess, is about how I feel about myself in relation to others. Uh, so telling that story... Um, well, that was the thing that I've been carrying that I've been ashamed about. So you feel unburdened? In a way, yeah. I feel like that was an aspect of myself and my history that I hadn't shared in the public domain. Um, and I didn't foresee that. That has really come uh, as a bit of a surprise, just that feeling of... It's like when Bert Potter died... I felt like I'd stepped out of this long, dark thick, heavy cloak, and until I stepped out of it, I didn't actually know that I was wearing it. It just was so odd to be, to feel a level of freedom that I didn't have before, and it's the same with this. 
let's talk about Centrepoint for a moment. Is it fair to say that Centrepoint was a bit of a magnet for people who were already damaged and thought they could bring their lives together, keep their families together, as your mother thought, at Centrepoint? Absolutely. It was a therapeutic-based community. That's what they were offering. They were offering a different way of living that was... You engaged in therapy. There was group therapy. I mean, the whole reason why Centrepoint began is because of the group therapy. Not everybody was damaged, though, were they? Um, I mean, I'm thinking there are... Maybe I'm getting it wrong. Maybe I'm stereotyping. But, I mean, there, there were functioning professional, intelligent people at Centrepoint. Absolutely. I um, I was actually flicking through a bit of the film last night and I stopped on a shot of that was taken... My, my brother's actually in it. I actually looked at the shot closely to see if I was in it. And I wasn't. It must have been hiding. Um, and I looked at all the people and I, f- look, I felt into how I felt about them. Um, and a lot of them I really liked. Like, there were some amazing people there... Um, professionals like what you're talking about, doctors, you know, lawyers, accountants, people who ran businesses on the property, um, upstanding, you know, middle class. It was quite middle class. Uh, and I liked a lot of the people. Yeah. Do you think that Bert Posher and indeed his wife and other people there made a beeline for the more vulnerable then? I don't know. Because uh, you were vulnerable, right? I mean, you'd had... You were troubled by the time you arrived at Centrepoint. Yeah. And so, in terms of a predator, you were prey, weren't you? Um, I didn't have an adult perspective when I was there. Like, I was, I was 15, and as you say, I was quite already quite wounded, quite, quite traumatised. Um, and I, you know, I focused on the luxury and the the space, and it was like paradise. Um, it was like paradise after living in little wee slummy flats and social welfare homes, and it was just this beautiful, <laughs> like a recreation park. Um, it was heavenly. Um, so I didn't really notice and what was happening, and I certainly didn't see sexual abuse things like that. They were not out in the open. Um, They weren't talked about. Uh, What was talked about was that they had an open sexualisation policy. Um, So as long as someone wasn't saying no, um, you could do whatever you wanted to children as long as you were asking them and they were saying yes. Um, And we didn't really find out that information till later, like sitting in some of the talks that Bert Potter gave on a Saturday morning and he talked about his philosophy. So what was kind of presented and what was talked about was a little bit different from what we were experiencing on a daily basis. But it must have been paradise, particularly for you as a teenager. You know, there was there was great food and there was there were free drugs and free sex. I mean, on paper, yeah. that sounds fabulous, <laughs> doesn't it? Well, when you put it like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't know. I didn't... I found the... I found people there. I just wasn't into. I wasn't into them. You know, I had my own punk rock boyfriends outside the community. I didn't get involved in, in intimately in the community um, until I had an ecstasy trip. Until they started taking ecstasy and giving us ecstasy, 
and I had an ecstasy trip with Bert, and then that kind of began my sexualization into the community. Um, and there was a point, and I explained it in the film, where um, where I made a conscious choice to uh, to belong at the community and to stop kicking up, uh, stop rebelling. Um, yeah, because so, you needed to belong somewhere. I did. I didn't want to go back into well, and it was at that when I took ecstasy with Bert, and I was coming up on my trip. And he said, I said, whoa, I'm out of here, man. You know, look at those trees and the sun outside. I just want to be in, in the bush. And I went to leave and he said, um, if you leave, you come up here to take a trip with me. If you leave this room, you have to leave the community and your mother and your sisters and your brother. And I was coming off on E and I was just like, no way. I can't, I can't let, no, I can't do that. And so I stayed there and endured, you know, sex therapy for um, however many hours. Um because I wanted, I wanted to belong. I wanted to belong. I wanted to be with my family. What did adults see in Bert Potter? Do you think? Well, when I was working with Uncorrector um, on the Centerpoint book, that's how this whole meeting Costa and everything began. Um, she was she was planning to write a book. Yeah, um, she was a friend of mine, and we had a conversation about Centerpoint one day, and she was interested, and then we put a uh, application into a proposal into a publisher. They accepted it. She I read an article she wrote which mm. said it just got too dark and too complicated. Yeah, she wrote the first draft, and she had came into some troubles, a couple of, you know, feeling like a, she was at breakdown point. Um, I think the information that she was being given, the detail of what people experienced... And I think a lot of what she came up against was the unhealed trauma that still exists with people. So they'd say, oh, yeah, I'm happy to be interviewed. And then she'd touch on something that, and she'd just watch their faces turn and watch the, you know, the, the atmosphere change. And she knew that she was no longer welcome. So it's, she came up against trauma. Um, and I can't remember what your original question was. Why is it that some people cannot talk about this? That that the trauma was so great, and you undoubtedly were traumatised, and yet you've gone in the other direction. You can talk about it. Well, yeah, that was my original point. So I was going to go and talk with Henry Stonex, who was like my centre point father that I ended up having a sexual relationship with that got really twisted when I was um, 16. Um, you mean he purported to be a father figure oh, yeah. and then wanted sex from you? Well, yeah, it, it was kind of a, a bit more complex than that. But, yeah, we ended up in a sexual relationship. I went to meet him. Anka was meant to come with me, but her friend died in a car accident uh, the day before. Um, so she stayed in Christchurch and I went and met Henry on my own. And in that meeting with him, I disassociated Um what does that mean, disassociation? So for me it means I go out of body, so it's like I almost go back and I can see myself conversing with the person and driving and doing whatever I'm doing, but I know I'm, I'm like way back. It's like there's, there's a, like a fog or a screen or, and I'm not quite fully there. And is that a kind of protective... I think it must be. Device, yeah. And I think I that started happening when I was really young. Like, I was abused from about one and a half to two and a half, something like that, years old. By one of your mother's partners? Yeah, yeah. Of whom there were many, right? There were many, <laughs> yeah. Okay. 
Yeah. So in terms of your question about um, why people, why it's so difficult to talk about, the whole reason why I engaged in that project with Anka and subsequently have ended up making this film with Costa, or he's ended up making this film about me, was I felt like it has... The whole Centrepoint experience is like this dark stain on New Zealand's landscape, you know, sex abuse, drugs, and we just kind of pushed it over, and yet um, it's never come up. It's never come up to be discussed. It's never come up to be kind of analysed. No one's ever told the story from the inside out. It's been reported on from the outside. Well, Sarah Smuts-Kennedy talked about it. People have talked about it. Yes. Yes, they have, yeah. And so what are you saying? If it's been talked about... How can it not be talked about? It's something about, I don't really know, but it's something about it hasn't been processed. So it may have been talked about, and we may have a comprehension at the level of mind of what's happened or or what happened, but possibly it hasn't gone any deeper than that. Uh, And I don't really know why that is apart from my own experience of telling the story at the pub, in the public domain, I feel like this layer of shame has lifted. So what I feel is, and what Anka came across when she was uh, researching the book, is all of these key figures at Centrepoint, like Bert's right-hand men, men and women, have manuscripts that are ready to be published on their deathbed. So they're not going to be published while they're alive. So people and they're not likely to be helpful to you, are they? Because they're going to be self-justifying and they're going to be a denial of any abuse if they were Bert Potter's right-hand people. I don't know. Like maybe they want to come clean. Maybe they want to. Maybe they. I think people are carrying shame of maybe the fact that they didn't say no, that they didn't really agree with marching their. Pre, well, you know, 11, 12-year-old girls up the hill to be deflowered by Bert Potter. You know, maybe they actually felt that that was wrong, but they they were doing it. So it's like there's this kind of split that happens inside or maybe a, a, you know, a denial of one's own truth in that moment because you've given this person the power and he's saying that's what he wants. So you go along with it. Um, I always felt when I was there that there was some kind of, like, as teenagers, we were told not to talk about anything that happened in the community outside the community it's like there was one there was a way of being in the community and outside people wouldn't understand and you did not talk about what what happened and i think that's why people haven't talked about what's happened it's because there was such a pact or a, a pact of like a tiny word for quite a big concept but it's like that's how a cult works right yeah exactly that's how it becomes a cult from like just being a spiritual community I'm talking to Angie Meeklejohn about a documentary that Costa Botis has just made about her. You were with your siblings there. Yeah. How long did it take before you could all sit down together and discuss what had happened? Well, sometimes little pieces of information would come out over, like, family dinners, um... Uh, my sister lives in Whangamatara and my younger sister and sometimes we'd all end up there over the summer and you know my sister made a comment one time about something that happened in an ecstasy session with Bert where where there were our siblings were there and I thought that I had done something Um, and then my other sister said no that wasn't you that was Bert who did that and I was like oh my god I've been carrying this 
shame in this that's been in my relationship with my sister because I thought I did something to her sexually under the influence of ecstasy and I had been carrying the shame and this guilt for this thing and yet my other sister said and they both said no that was Bert who did that and I was like oh my gosh so when we sat down with Anka and Costa, Costa that was the first time Costa came in and filmed that family circle that was five years ago Uncle pulled the four of us together and we um, we held a sharing circle and we all took turns and we shared uh, what happened for us at Centre Point. And that was the first time that I'd heard my siblings talk at any length, uninterrupted, unquestioned, so they could just really tell it all. That was the first time, so that was five years ago. That's extraordinary, isn't it? So you're all carrying your own stories. Mm. You... Um, you talk to alcohol, mm. promiscuous sex. Yeah. Is that fair to say? Oh, absolutely. Worked as a prostitute, absolutely. Can you can you make the link for me between having such a terrible experience in or was it having a terrible experience at centre point with sex and then taking it up as a profession? Yeah, sure. So what happens for me, and I can't speak you know, for anybody else, but no. what happens for me is from a very young age, people have been coming into my bedroom and interfering with me sexually. When I'm a really small child, I can't fight, I can't flee. So what I did was I froze. Now, in freeze, in the physical animal response of freeze, uh, another aspect of myself took over. Okay, just let him do it. Just um, pretend it's okay. Uh, it's going to be over in a moment. Um, just come on, let's just get through this. And that happens every time I'm in a sexual situation or has happened until I've started to do some healing around it. And there's something about I would go out of body and I'd feel their body and their arousal and their power and I'd identify with that and I would start to get a rush out of the experience. So for me to flip that around and to to work as a prostitute, there was such a sense of power in that. Um, and because of my ability, and I didn't even know that I did that until later on a shamanic workshop, I realised that we did a little exercise where we went out and we went into the other person's body or we training ourselves to go out of body. And I was like, oh my God, I'm out of body like that without even doing it. I do it like that. Um, subsequently, I've learned to begin to pull my awareness back inside my own body and done a lot of work around that. And I'm still practicing that in an intimate situation where I can learn to be present in my body. Costa says a lot of the things that you're into in order to heal yourself are, you know, kind of to him, yeah. right? And you accept that. I totally. You know, shamanic embodiment. Yeah. All that. Yeah. But you clearly believe that it's helping you and it's what you need? Um, it's just kind of, I've just run into things and learnt things uh, and practised things um, that have really helped, yeah. And 
Yeah, I don't I don't need anyone else to believe that. I think and the beautiful thing about Costa was almost like we were coming from the opposite <laughs> ends of the spectrum. I was was really in the really in the shamanic world and working a lot and I mean I've always had strange experiences my whole life. I've seen things and heard things and and had no reference point for what I was experiencing and a lot of my alcohol alcohol drinking and drug taking was trying to drown out what I was experiencing and through coming in across different people and different workshops I've been able to get some understanding of, of my sensitivity, shall we say, and to be able to work with them rather than to um, to try and shut them out. Yeah, You've got two sons and they speak in the documentary as well. They seem really nice people. Mm-mm. And... They've had some very hard times with you. They didn't see a lot of you when they were small. Yeah. Um, how do you feel about that now? Um, yeah, it's an interesting time of reflection. I'm going to be a grandmother in a couple of months. Um, and that's brought me and my son closer together, which has been an interesting process. And, yeah, we talk really openly about... Uh, me about our relationships um, about the past um, and I always have possibly <laughs> to my detriment as the boys talk about in the documentary or my youngest son Harry does um, that it was just all out there and um, and the upside of that is they, they always know where they stand and they have a lot of awareness about human beings and how they relate and uh, yeah I don't feel of course, I you know I wish it had gone another way, but I don't feel I feel like they are the people they are because of what they've experienced, and they, you know, they um, as you are people love them the way they are, so they wouldn't be who they are without having Nor experienced would you. all of that. So. Do you take that attitude towards yourself? Uh, you wouldn't be the person you are if you hadn't gone through all this stuff. Absolutely. I don't regret anything. You don't? No. Not even all of those experiences at Centrepoint, the horror and I I do yeah, I do some work supporting other women and some voluntary work and yeah, I don't I don't regret. I don't regret anything. Because I feel like it can be of benefit to others and really that's why I made the film. It was like I wanted to bring some light and some awareness to to what happened at Centrepoint and to where people are now and to what people are facing in terms of uh, within themselves um, and why people don't talk about it. And How many other people who were at Centrepoint have you got to know or made contact with? Um, through the North and South article uh, that had me be a bit of a focal point for that, I guess, um, so I had a lot of contact around that time, and of course, with this documentary going uh, live, being advertised in the New Zealand International Film Festival, I've, more people are contacting me. We have a um, a lot of us who were teenagers then. We have a, uh, a we're in contact. Were you one of those who brought charges against Bert Potter? No. When I came out of the community, I maintained for a long time that everything I did there, I was a yes to. I said yes, um, 
I was a yes. I don't understand why those girls were making those claims. Who were they to make those claims against Bert Potter and those and those amazing people at the community? Like I was totally a stand for those witches. How could they go against the code? Um, that's how I felt at the time. I wanted nothing to do with it. What changed you? Um, Realising that I had been uh, come under some kind of indoctrination. How did you, when did you realise that? When did you get free of the indoctrination sufficiently to realise that you'd been indoctrinated? It's been a process, I think, of having, you know, counselling, psychotherapy, um, having things happen in my life, you know, coming up feeling suicidal, um, having a person that I was lived at Centrepoint with come and spend some time with me in a disassociated state, uh, realising that my allegiance to her was stronger than it was to my own children, to have someone who was unstable in my house to put my children through that, um, to then, uh, when the uh, Uncas article came out, the North and South article, there's another woman in that article who was a girl at Centrepoint. When that article came out, we both kind of went into, sh- or I think I went into shock a little bit, even though I'd read the draft. And when I spoke with this girl on the phone, the almost like the, the cult psychology or instruction or whatever it was I just felt it surge up when I was in connection with her and we kind of made Anka wrong in our minds and made the whole process wrong and I felt this allegiance and this power from connecting with the centre point um, it's like I don't even I can't even find the words for it I don't even know the words and I think in this country we, I don't even know whether we have any cult specialists or cult deprogrammers or I think those kinds of people that kind of training is is really needed um, because it's right through your whole psychology emotionality when you've made something your higher power like made it your god um, when you've given it so much power and you've become a subject to that, um, to then try and find a sense of self. In the documentary, your aunt says that she was worried, you know, and she asked you what Santa Point was like, Bert Potter, and you said he was a really, really nice man. Yeah. So strange, huh? Yeah, we just, we lied, we lied at school, we we lied to everyone's faces. Without knowing you were lying at oh. any stage? Oh no, we knew. Oh no, you just did not tell everyone. They would not understand. So it wasn't that you believed he was a really nice man. It was that you felt compelled to say that. Yeah. Right. Yeah, because... I mean, we talk about in the documentary, we all found him really disgusting. I didn't want to be having sex with him. He was just old and fat and disgusting. (laughs) But we did it because that's just what you do. That's what what you do. Do you think there's a point where you will have reached the end of the healing process? I think... In other words, 
are you going to be fixed soon? <laughs> <laughs> I realised... Hey, I'm I fixed re- already! <laughs> I realised that's what that question really sounded like. But you know what I mean. Oh, I know. I'm not, and Kester, you know, my eldest son talks to that in the documentaries. Like, you know, every workshop that mum goes on, um, I... I don't know. I don't think there's an end point necessarily. One of the boys says that it's like you're finishing a puzzle of yourself and when you've done that, when you've done that jigsaw, Mm. then you can start... Maybe he means then you can start stopping the workshops and, you know, go and travel and... Yeah, that would be great. Do you think that's going to happen? I don't know. I actually don't know. I'm talking to Angie Meeklejohn, who is... A survivor of the notorious Centrepoint community. What do you want now? What do you want? I mean, the the documentary makes it clear that you have great difficulty with intimate relationships. Mm-hmm. So, don't don't have one. How would that be? Yeah, these are all the questions that I'm really sitting with right. and I don't have answers for. I mean, you don't have to be good at everything, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know? I don't know. My, my good friend Julie Edwards, she's in the film at the moment. She's, um, well, she's in the film and at the moment she's in Wellington and I went to drama school with her. And I'm going to a lot of theatre and I've always wanted to write a one-woman show about mum and I started a play a few years ago about uh, a set in a woman's gentleman's club. Uh, it's about women's sexuality, um, and I feel like you maybe in the gentlemen's club. Yeah, right. at Bill Crow's, that's in the film as well. Yes, um, I feel like I've. It, when I was at Centrepoint, I was kind of in third person, and I was like, "This is going to make a really interesting story one day." Um, and I felt like that when I was at Bill, Cro- Bill Crow's as well. I actually ended up filming him. I was at film school and made a bit of a documentary about him, um, and it's kind of like that. Now it's like I wonder if I'll begin my storytelling again now that I've told this story that I feel like I've been carrying for so long that I'll actually begin to be able to um, process through writing and through making work Um, rather than what I've been doing is, you know, doing sex work, uh, working as a conscious sensuality practitioner. I've been trying to work out my sexual issues through learning about uh, sexuality, about um, sexual energy, uh, about intimacy. You know, I've been working as an intimacy coach. I kind of laugh about it because, you know, I'm teaching that stuff to learn it myself. I'm not teaching it from any place of I know. I'm teaching it from what is this and what? how do human beings even navigate this, this really tricky territory? Um, so I don't know. I don't know whether I'll continue to do that. I mean, that's my work. Um, or whether I'll branch off and and or split split out and do and do the acting and the writing, um, or whether I'll, it will be a combination of the two. I, I actually don't know. I feel like I've come to this point of um, I used to be propelled to heal, like just so propelled to heal, um, and I feel like watching this the documentary and seeing myself through another person's eyes has been like whoa, like. This is this. This is real <laughs> hodgepodge of what a life, and 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 also the documentary ends um, 
you know, I mean, he had to stop filming at some point. And, of course, subsequently in the last year since we've filmed, um, you know, I feel like I've come through a whole lot of stuff to the point where I just I don't feel the need to do that real intense work on myself anymore. Um, and I said to him the other day, it would be so nice if we could end the documentary like on a, you know, kind of on a higher note. And he said, well, you know, I can't film you forever. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> And I guess it has to end somewhere, and it ends where it, where it does. And people have seen. Well, it you could just have one. a sort of rolling footnote saying Angie's better now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think. I mean, I don't. I don't think there's anywhere to get to. Like I feel. Like, no, right. There's no destination. Yeah. It's always a process. Absolutely. But I watched the documentary, and I talk to you now, and I and I see an extraordinarily hmm, healthy. Um, warm, highly functioning human being. Is that how you feel inside? Well, um, some days. Right. Yeah. Some days. That's that's quite a big deal to feel those things. Yeah, I do. I mean, I feel calm and happy and peaceful, and a lot of the time. And I've also worked my life out uh, so I can experience that. You know, living on my own. I'm living on my own for the first time in my life. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. Because hitherto it seems to be a compulsion to live with a man. Yeah, it totally did, yeah. Um, I mean, I haven't had that many relationships, but um, I've never... I mean, I don't even know. I don't know whether I'm heterosexual. I don't know whether I'm homosexual. I don't know whether I'm asexual. I don't know uh, about myself. All of my relationships have begun with someone being attracted to me and inviting me to come on a bit of a ride with them. And I've gone, oh, okay. And that's how every relationship of mine has started. I've never gone, whoa, I really dig that person. I wonder if I'll ask them out. So I've never you, had that experience. You've not been the active individual in any partnership ever? No. Oh. No. And how is it being on your own? I really love it. <laughs> I mean, I live right across from the ocean, you know, on the south coast, and that's all I see is ocean, and it's that's my favourite place, being in the sea. I'm a bit of a seal. So I feel really happy there. Mm. That's good then, isn't it? Yeah. And what sort of work are you doing on yourself at the moment? Oh, no, that's a big question. I know. <laughs> I don't think you've got time. No. <laughs> um, Give me a clue. Well, I work, my work is, my training that I did last year um, is as a sexological body worker. So that's a massive conversation. A sexological <laughs> body worker. Yeah. Who made that up? The University of California. Ah. <laughs> Trust the Americans. Seriously, okay. Um, so... In order to do that work, um, I need to have supervision. I need to keep be doing having those sessions with other certified sexological body workers. So that's my way of keeping the work going. And I'm just about to start working in that arena after training and doing my practice hours and whatnot. And I'm at the threshold of, do I step into that work? Is that just another form of trying to heal myself? Um, is that going to serve me? Am I doing this because I want to heal the whole of humanity in the area of sexuality? And am I doing that because I want to heal myself? Or I want to 
part of me just wants to raise the whole of humanity's consciousness. I mean, one in three girls are sexually abused, one in five boys that we know about. That means one in three men and women are doing the, the abusing. You know, these questions about what is pedophilia? Why is it so prolific in our society? I mean, those questions are really present for me. Um, do I then go and do more research and learn about that and so I can help humanity in that way? I mean, I just have this desire for humanity to evolve, um, which is just so much a part of my everyday waking life. Part of me feels that's why I'm here, why I've had this whole experience, is so I can then learn from that and then be able to give and be of service. So that's what that work's about. And then part of me's like... I just want to do what I was doing before all of that, which I was just... I just loved singing and acting and being on stage and performing. and That was my whole life before Centrepoint. That's what I loved playing my guitar and writing music. It's like I just want to do that, you yeah. know. You say at the end of the documentary, wouldn't it be great if we could just wipe it all away and start again? Yeah. But having said that, you don't regret anything and you are what you are today because of what's happened. Yeah. So you've got those those two things to contend with, right? Yeah. Your mother, do you think she was bipolar from the very beginning? My mother was sexually abused and she was one and a half, two years old. Oh, Lord. By her grandfather, yeah, possibly. Yeah, early on. And then um, she wrote me a letter before she died listing all the abuse she'd ever suffered. Mm. And it was horrendous. You know, she'd go and do her brownie badges at people's houses and they'd do whatever to her. Um, so my mum was really damaged, and um, you mean, she. So do you think? I mean, she was bipolar. She was diagnosed as bipolar, but I don't know whether that's. I think chemically that's what you can develop, mm. but it's like, where does that begin? Where does that split uh, begin? Yeah, yeah, and I think um, it. I think a lot of you know, mental illness and whatnot comes from early childhood trauma. It's the inability of the nervous system and the mind to integrate the trauma that's happening um, because your security is threatened um, and that's really damaging. I mean, they're making those links now in studies between um, sexual trauma and mental illness and whatnot. So I think more there's going to be a lot more... Um, information uh, that comes out in this next 10 years about those kinds of things. Mm. So how, Jules Barber is in the documentary and she says, I don't know anyone who's done so much work on herself. And it hasn't, you know, that's taken a lot of time and energy. That's a real mission you've been on, isn't it? Well, I'd be, I'd be dead if I didn't do it. Like, I've come to that point of suicide so many times, like, and once really, really dramatically, which I talk about in the film. And it was from that point. And, you know, I feel like... That was like, a turning point for you, wasn't it? Absolutely. You got I, very, very drunk. 
And well, I was absolutely lucid. I drank and drank and drank, and I couldn't get drunk. And then I thought, well, I'm out. I cannot be. I cannot live this life anymore. And I was going to. And I was going to stab. You know, kill myself. Um, and I feel like. Mum's suicide was the greatest gift to me. And I actually felt like that at the time, which is weird to say. How um, did she kill herself? Uh, she threw herself off the balcony um, when she was in my care. Yeah. And damaged herself so severely. Yeah, I think she broke her. She hadn't eaten or slept for a week because she was having an episode. and She'd actually been getting higher and higher for a year. Um unmedicated, unsupported, yeah. Do you have to feel, or have you dealt with feeling guilty about that? At first I just felt angry. I felt angry that my stepfather didn't get her help, that he listened to her and put her wants and needs of not having any kind of intervention over that, over what was be- doing what was best for her. But um, at the time, the police officer said to me, I have to ask you this, but you know, did you have anything to do with her going off the deck? And I said, I would have liked to have thrown her off. (laughs) I hated her that much. I would have liked to have picked her up and thrown her off the deck myself. But I said, no, but I didn't. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Because it was a paradox. I loved her with all of my heart. And I hated her. Um, Because... Um, probably much the same as my children said about me. It was just her whole life and her whole process was right there in front of me my whole life. And I just wanted to be as far away from it as possible. I just found her horrifying. So part of what you're doing is breaking some kind of cycle. Absolutely. I'm so glad I haven't had a girl child. Like, I was just so glad that it ended with me. And that as far as I know, my children weren't sexually abused. Um, You know, I know my mother's mother was as well. So it's like it's it's just down this family line. Um, And I I hope it's ended with me. Yeah. That was Angie Meeklejohn. And the documentary is called Angie. It's directed by Costa Botes and it will premiere at the New Zealand International Film Festival in July, kicking off in Auckland.